This morning our sermon is a meditation on Lamentations 1. Listen and hear what the Lord says. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no rest. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes has become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her and they mocked her at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanliness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible and she has no comforter. O oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord afflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire. Into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke by his hand. They were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty man in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young man. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, for there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his enemies should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. 
I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword bereaves. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announce. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before them and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is weak. Blessed be the, name, the word of the Lord. What you just heard was the description of a city laying in ruins. The smoldering ruins of Jerusalem. Suffering on a national scale. We're actually watching in this moment in time some suffering on an international scale, aren't we? International scale relating to the coronavirus. Suffering those affected by the virus. And also the hysteria surrounding it. I'm not sure if you were one of the people at Costco fighting over toilet paper rolls or not. But that is the scene the world over at this time of crisis and fear and legitimate uh, virus spreading around the globe. I think it is a helpful time for a quick history lesson. And uh, in it, you will find something pretty phenomenal about the Christian faith. It was common in the early centuries of Christianity, in the humble beginnings of Christianity. It was common in ancient societies, including Rome, to abandon the sick and dying. Their own religion didn't teach followers to care for the helpless. Likewise, in ancient Greek religion, there was no ethic for caring for the poor, caring for the sick, and caring for the dying. Against this backdrop, Christianity was in stark contrast. Christianity teaches the intrinsic value of every human being. Rodney Stark wrote a great book called The Rise of Christianity, and in it, he argues that some of the marked growth of the church in the early centuries can be attributed to this care and compassion that Christians showed for the sick. And he actually, what he does in the book is he actually traces increased conversion rates during three centuries, but specifically during three plagues. In the second century, the third century, and the sixth century. So while Romans actually literally were abandoning their sick loved ones, they were pushing them out to the streets and leaving them there, and many of uh, the noble in society, including the physicians, fled the city or cities where the plagues were taking place. Christians ran toward the plague. 
Christians risked their own lives by going out into the streets to gather up the sick and dying and provide compassionate care at the risk of their own lives. Candida Moss, a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at Notre Dame, notes that an epidemic that seemed like the end of the world actually promoted the spread of Christianity. And that second century plague, nearly, it's, hard to, it's hard to fathom, nearly a third of the population died. And Christians were the ones who cared and oftentimes died right alongside the sick because of contracting the disease. By their actions in the face of possible death, Christians showed their neighbors that Christianity is worth dying for. We are wading into a sermon series about the language of lament, and we're, we are trying to learn the language of lament. It's a neglected language in the church today. So how do we apply the language of lament, this biblical language, how do we apply it to everything? How do we apply it to COVID-19? How do we apply it to the coronavirus? Well, I think that applying the language of lament will help us care about it. We should care. This is affecting people all over the world, whether they're contracting it, dying from it, or in fear over it. We should care. Part of what the language of lament does is look out at the hurts of others, the pain of others, emotional or physical or whatever, and genuinely care and genuinely pray. Additionally, we should mourn. We should mourn over the 3,600 people who have died, who have lost their lives. We should mourn for them. We should mourn for their families. We should grieve with people who have contracted this and their bodies can't handle it. I think Christian wisdom would also teach us that we should take precautionary measures. We should be wise. We should refrain from handshakes, Church, we should refrain from the holy kiss for a season. It's the right thing to do, okay? But really, we should, we, we should listen to our, our uh, healthcare professionals and what they're encouraging us to do. We're not trying to s spread the plague. We're not trying to spread a virus. We're not trying... Look, that's going to say something very different about Christianity. Our goal is to be wise about all of that, to wash our hands and not touch our face and all of that. And actually, in the coming days and week, we're actually going to do a lot more communication about coronavirus and things we're going to apply here that are just plain wise. We additionally need to take our cue from historic Christianity May we not be so removed from our roots that we respond entirely differently than the previous generations. And, and how did they do that? Well, unlike others, right, we need to embody this. Our most urgent priority is not self-preservation, church. Not our most urgent priority. Our most urgent question isn't, how do I stay healthy? But instead, how can I help the sick? Because Jesus came 
to help the sick. And you know what the mark of the Christian is? To do the same. Because Jesus has safely preserved us for all eternity, gaining our own self-preservation is not our most urgent priority. Jesus has safely preserved us for eternity, and he will see us all the way through. These are moments, like throughout history, where the response of Christians of compassion and kindness and hope in the midst of crisis and fear. In the past, they've sparked revival. And in the present, part of our lament, part of our praying, part of our seeking, part of our embodying of Christianity is, Lord, will you do it again? Would you keep me from fear in the midst of a world that is filled with fear over this thing? When I get to Costco and there is one package of rolls of toilet paper left, may I just let the person freaking out take that and entrust my soul to Jesus. <laughs> Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm trying to say a few things at the same time. I'm not giving an anti-vaxation speech or anything. Like, that's not what I'm doing right now. I'm saying let's use Christian wisdom, but let's not forget who we are. Let's not forget our history. May we, by God's grace, embody Jesus at a time when parts of the world feel like they're burning and we're like, we're okay. You can find security. So look, we're working our way through the book of Lamentations. Actually, we're just cracking it open this morning. We've helpfully had uh, Lamentations chapter one read for us. And as we go about, embark on this series, we're, kind of, we're asking the question is how do we apply the language of lament to everything, to all of our lives? So why Lamentations? I'm just gonna ask you a couple questions this morning and we're gonna press them a little bit. Why Lamentations? Let me give you the long answer, the preacher answer. I, one of the things I love about the Bible, I absolutely love about the Bible is that it's so real. Like it's so honest. Let me tell you what I mean. I can observe tragedy in the world. I can turn on the news and I can hear about tragedy. Wouldn't you know it? I can also open my Bible and read about tragedy. I can experience loss. You can experience loss. You know what? You can go into your Bible, open it up, and there are people experiencing loss. You look around, and there's some pretty strange stuff happening in the world, right? Well, I think you know this. You can open your Bible and discover that there's some pretty strange stuff going on in the Bible. Why? Well, because the Bible isn't only a book that describes who God is and what he's like. It, better than anything else on the planet, describes who we are and what we are truly like. And so, why Lamentations? It's, it's really helpful to open the Bible and hear questions being asked. Like, how lonely sits the city that was full of people? How long, O oh Lord? What are you doing, God? Are you there? Do you care? Have you forgotten me? Will justice ever come? And I think it's, I really believe it's helpful as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to be reminded that the Bible, people in the Bible ask those questions, that we are allowed to ask those questions. Because it's, it's a really lonely place to be when we don't feel like we can be honest with God 
Like we're not allowed to ask questions like that. Or we're not allowed to ask questions like that around fellow pilgrims, followers of Jesus. That's a really lonely place to be. And the Bible actually shows us, no, there's a language for this. It's okay. God actually desires that you ask questions like this. The Bible has laments in it. Laments are for real life. What we're spending the weeks leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday doing is learning the language of lament to give you language to talk honestly with God about your own difficulty and the difficulty you observe around you. Just a reminder, lament is a prayer through pain that leads to trust. A lament prayer is... Uh, A lament is a prayer through which a believer pours out their heart to God because of the struggles, tensions, or pains they feel in their lives. Put another way, laments are cried out in the gap. What gap? The gap between I know that I'm secure in Jesus, I know I have hope in him, and man, things are so broken. Lord, I am so grieving. I am hurting. And a lament prayer stands in the gap. It stands in the gap between what we know to be true about God and what's happening in our lives and in the world. Right in the middle is the language of lament. A Christian lament identifies what's underneath the pain. Sorrows not only over something that has taken place, but the fact that there's brokenness in the world and the fact that today God has delayed ultimate deliverance. It's praying in the gap. Lamentations gives us a land to live in between you owe me, God, and it's over. God, you owe me. You have not, been, you have not done right by me. And there's no hope. Lamentations is the alternative to crying either of those statements. Let me just give you a little bit of uh, background, a little bit of information about Lamentations that I think will be helpful as we embark on this series. Um, There's a lot of evidence that points to uh, the prophet Jeremiah as the author of Lamentations. He lived at this time. He was a prophet warning Judah at this time over and over and over again. He's uh, referred to as the weeping prophet for that reason. Uh, He had a very difficult ministry. God commanded him not to, to marry. His own people plotted to kill him. And throughout the book of Jeremiah, he consistently called for the people to repent, to renew their commitment to God, but they failed to do so. If you know of Jonah, the prophet Jonah in the Bible, Jonah and Jeremiah are pretty much opposites. Jonah wasn't a very good prophet. And he went into a city and the city was saved. Jeremiah was a really faithful prophet. And the city ignored him. They didn't respond at all. And this smoldering city of Jerusalem that we read about in Lamentations is because of the hard-heartedness of the people and the warnings from Jeremiah, from God, through the prophet Jeremiah, that they ignored. The book of Lamentations is a collection of five 
lament poems, five separate laments for a fallen city and a fallen people. The first two chapters introduce the book. And interestingly enough, the third chapter is the pinnacle, the climax of the book, the kind of I have hope and God is faithful moment of the book. And then it goes down again. The last two chapters don't conclude neatly. Actually, pain is still lingering and the city is still in ruins. But what a book then, right? Circumstances bad. Hope in God, circumstances bad. God is still faithful. What a testimony the book of Lamentations is. Some of the chapters, including chapter one, were written as an acrostic. There are 22 letters in Hebrew. You'll note that there's 22 verses in this lament. Each verse or really stanza of the poem starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet and it works its way through. In other words, Lamentations wants us to see that the suffering stretches from A to Z. You ever feel hopeless? You're like, I do not see a way out of the situation I am in right now. Sometimes it's helpful to open up a book like Lamentations that says the suffering is from A to Z. Now what? So there are parts of scripture like Job. Man, I love the Bible. There are parts of scripture like Job that help us make sense of personal loss and tragedy. While other parts of scripture like Lamentations help us make sense of corporate loss, tragedy, and disaster even on a national scale, like we see in Lamentations, or an international, global scale. So how do we deal with tragedy that's happened on a grand scale? Lamentations is a beautiful, dark, hope-filled example for us. Lament can awaken us to the needs of those around us. And I think that's precisely the call of the church in this moment. Nicholas Wolterstorff wrote a book called Lament for a Son writing about the grief of losing his son. In it, he said this, I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not see. Do some of you get that? Like, get it? He's grieving over the loss of a son, and he says, I shall look at the world. He's starting to learn. He's starting to apply. He's starting to just try and walk through it all. And he says, I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not see. And he's glancing at pain of others. And it's as if he's seeing that pain for the first time because he's walked some of it too. Last week, we had these on the chairs. And uh, we asked you to write down your lament. And then uh, the following Tuesday, this past Tuesday, we met as a staff and there were five boxes. And we broke into small groups, three or four per box and, and opened up the box and read. Like they were packed. Every single box was packed with laments. And so a, a group of three or four, we, we, like 40, read every single one prayed over every single one. And I resonate with those words, that I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not see. 
And I, I hate that I'm holding these. I hate that I'm holding just, just a fraction of what you wrote down. I hate that in Agassiz and in Promontory and last night in Lake Iraq, more cards, more laments. And yet there's something about it where we just, we tap into this and just go, we know this. How do we wade into this? How do we learn the language of lament for the good of one another? Like, how do we learn to walk this together? And I just think maybe the best way to, to help us get a picture is just for me to read a few. And I would say to a card, there were a pile more along the same lines. This card, the writer simply said, help me feel something, anything. This card says parenting. We have one shot to get it right, and it feels like one failing after another. Are we doing right by our children? Healing our marriage. This couple wrote, for years we've prayed for healing. We've prayed for God to at least postpone the impending blindness. And yet it's approaching like a freight train. When the literal darkness closes in, it's hard to see the light. This card reads, I have suffered three miscarriages. I have been unable to carry any children to term. Well, I have family members having children they don't want or well involved in drugs and crime. It is very hard to see why and accept. I try not to think about it anymore. How long, O oh Lord, will I be mocked and scorned for my belief in you by my family? That my mom and dad, that my brother and his family will have their hearts and eyes open to you. How long must I confess bitterness and ask for forgiveness for the pain caused me by my father and my grandfather? Please remove this pain that keeps resurfacing and plaguing me. Depression and heartache consume me. I'm the worst person to read these cards. Oh my gosh. Let's get a hard-hearted pastor up here. Where's one of the hard-hearted? Jason? Jason? No, just kidding. Just kidding. Totally kidding. All right. Here's the next one. Help me to be able to show emotion that's disappeared because of years of abuse. I can't let people get close to me because I'm afraid of being hurt. A very difficult marriage, crushing loneliness, anxiety and depression. Fear that I'll always be faced with the pain of my husband's affair. Not knowing, not believing God's love for me. I have had anxiety my whole life and I have been wish I have been using marijuana to help me help the last 3 years. I recently went on medication but I'm struggling to stop using marijuana. I 
I also constantly doubt my salvation and God's love for me, and it affects everything I do. The salvation of my children. Why, God? Are they not following you? How long? Broken trust in my marriage that causes constant doubt, anger, resentment, jealousy in my heart. Desiring an ever-growing relationship with Jesus and knowing that if I have Jesus, I have the power to deal with my sinful heart. Lord, you've called me, spoken to my heart about being a mother to many, but what does that look like? Forever kids come and go? I am so not able to do that alone. I am not able to sit in this waiting time alone. I want to know what comes next. Calm my heart. Remind me of the fruit of waiting, where you have shaped me during waiting in the past. It seems as though we have been locked in a holding pattern for a long time, knocking on doors, seeking employment somewhere we can afford to live, buy a home and put down roots, Doors haven't opened and our situation here doesn't seem very favorable. Worse still is the back pain that negatively colors everything. I keep waiting and hoping for some kind of breakthrough. All the while recognizing these pains have been benefit, benefiting our character and trust in God. For as long as I can remember, I have battled same-sex attraction. I have been praying for decades to have some peace in it. Instead, I'm still stuck in the battle and abandoned by God. At least, it feels that way. Loss of a young man. Why? It feels like thunder and lightning. The loss does not go away. Loss of my babies through miscarriage. Secondary pain because it's hard to talk about, and when I do, it's not validated. So sad and grieving, and I feel alone. I miss my babies. How can God be loving when he's taken my babies? I feel like my heart has been torn up and almost nothing left to love the child I have and my husband. Just a drop in the bucket. There's something incredibly painful about writing those on the cards. I'm so grateful that you did because every card represents pain and anguish. A lot of it just really unresolved. So there's something really ugly really wrong with having to do that for all the things there. But isn't there something rich? Like, isn't there something about putting the pain down and knowing that others are praying and being able to put pen to paper and words and know that you can tell God those things that's freeing, that somehow it's like there is hope. That's why lamentations. That's why. I don't know that we've always had, like, 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 like Pastor Tyson was saying, we don't have a lot of songs where we sing lament. We should. Because if we have no framework by which to 
process the stuff that's going on. That's harmful to our faith. And I worry about people who feel like they're not allowed to say it. And they're not allowed to process it. And therefore, I've got to just abandon this faith or whatever it be. No, the Bible tells us otherwise. We can bring them to God. We can speak out our laments. We can pray them with one another. And we can live in the gap of knowing what is true about God. And stuff that often, a lot of days, feels utterly hopeless. And I don't know what to do. Right there. The Bible has language for that. And Jesus wants to see you through. Lament can awaken us to the hurt, pain, and needs that are all around us. I've just got a second question for us. It's a question that I think I, I, I hear in, in some of these cards. And I, I think due to the circumstances that many of you are in, it's a question that makes sense. Here's the question. Is it right of God to afflict his people? I mean, I, I don't know if you caught it. I'm going I'm to revisit some of the verses that were read. But in Lamentations 1, it's really clear. God is the one ultimately afflicting his people. He's using Assyria. He's using Babylon. But it's God who's afflicting his people. Look at verse 5. The Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Verse 12. Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Verse 14, the Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. Verse 15, the Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. Verse 17, Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. So it's clear God has brought the affliction upon his people. The question is, is God right in doing so? Well, verse 18 could not give us a more direct answer. It says this. Jeremiah responds with this. The Lord is in the right. For I have rebelled against his word. Do you agree with that verse? The Lord is in the right. I have rebelled against him. This rubs many of us the wrong way. We want, what we want is for those around us to conform to our moral standards, right? What we don't want is God to place his moral standards on us. We live in the cancel culture, right? Somebody's done something wrong and in the public eye, we shame them and we cast them off. They are unworthy. But God, like, never do that to me. We want, what we want are all the blessings of God. That's what we want. We want good and we even expect good of God. We want all the blessings of God. What we don't want is to submit our lives under his rule and reign. 
It's been said this way, we want the kingdom without the king. We want all of his benefits, but none of his demands. Here's the challenge in the text. Judah didn't listen to her prophets. Right? The people ignored the word of God. They were filled with idolatry and injustice to the point that God brought affliction through the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Here's what happened for a really long period of time. Like we're talking a hundred and some odd years, right? Israel to the north, the 10 tribes were, were more overtly wicked earlier on and they were cast into exile. It was this warning. And then the prophets came and the prophets spoke to Judah and these two tribes in the south in the city of Jerusalem. And they warned them and they warned them, but they would not listen. But they had all of this time. And what's interesting is they sinned and they felt no immediate consequences. And so they concluded it must be okay. Nothing happened immediately that must mean it's no big deal. But that's a really dangerous thing. Just because there were no immediate consequences doesn't mean there are no consequences at all. That's what Israel believed. They believed because there were no immediate consequences, there would be no consequences at all. And yet here we find them and their city lying in waste. Here we find lamentations has happened. And we are in danger of the same thing. In our own private lives, we think, I got away with this sin and nothing happened. I'm still here, right? The house didn't burn down, right? I didn't lose my job, right? My marriage is still intact. My kids are still alive and okay. We think, I can carry on in my crooked ways. We are in danger of the same thing. Divine justice and judgment are a part of the story of redemption. And we need to always remember that redemption is only important, grace is only amazing, and forgiveness is only needed because God is holy and divine judgment is coming whether we like it or not. And so what sets the table that what's happening as we look at lamentations is that underneath the destruction of Jerusalem, every pain and all our laments, underneath all of it is the real problem. And the real problem is sin. Sin before a holy God. And God is in the right to address it. Lamentations is urging us to see this. God is in the right. So in the wake of their rebellion, Jerusalem sits pummeled and reeling and crying out to God for mercy. So how does our God of perfect holiness and justice respond? Asking it more directly to you, how does God respond to us when we cry out to him in the wake of our rebellion? Well, here's some beautiful verses in Isaiah 53. This is what we see in the midst of our rebellion before God. This is how we see God responding. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men. 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Here's what's right. Here's what's just. That those who ignore the call, the message, and the person of Jesus should experience his justice. What's actually unjust, what isn't right, but is sheer kindness and grace is this. That the Son of God would take the affliction upon himself so that we could be forgiven. That we could be made right with God. That we could be redeemed. Is God in in the right for afflicting his people? The answer is yes. But God in his mercy extended grace to you and afflicted his son so that you might be healed, that you might be forgiven. If you have your Bible open still, look at Lamentations 1 verse 12. I think that this is actually a messianic text, that this actually speaks most profoundly, most clearly about Jesus. Listen to it. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see. If there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger, this is what I think it's saying. Look no further than the cross. Jesus became a spectacle to all who passed by him on the street as he bore the cross. No one has ever faced greater sorrow than Jesus. The deepest of sorrows. Jesus was smitten by God and afflicted. Jesus suffered not for his sin, but ours, our transgressions, our iniquities. He suffered on our behalf to bring us peace. And by his pain, we are healed. How does God respond to the cries of the afflicted? You need not wonder he responded with the cross. See, the cross was necessary, and this is what Lamentations reminds us of. The cross was necessary because we are sinners and God is holy. God is holy and we are not, and our only hope is not that we're going to get away with our sin, but that Jesus bore our sin. This text here exists to warn us. To warn us not to put our hope in getting away with our sin, but to put our hope in Jesus who bore our sin. Do you trust Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus? Have you turned to Jesus? Is today the day you need to turn to Jesus? Is today the day you need to turn back to Jesus? I want to invite all of us to cling to and remind each other of this truth. A truth that is truer than even your deepest misery. The essence of the Christian life isn't suffering, isn't even affliction, it's grace. 
And Lamentations 1 shows us the reality of sin playing out on a national scale and the suffering that followed. And we resonate with that. We observe that. But we also see the cross. When you are living in the land of lament, you have a biblical prayer language. You have the language of lament to interpret both the goodness of God seen most clearly in the cross and the brokenness, the sin that is working its way into every part of the human experience. Stand in the gap. Praise God for lament. Jesus, I just thank you that, uh, I thank you for everyone here and for all these cards that were handed in and just the level of authenticity and transparency. It's, it's weighty, Lord, to, to read these and to, to recognize that as each one of us comes through the doors, as we gather as the church family each weekend, each one of us is bearing a burden. Oh, Jesus, I pray that we would not only be able to bring it to you, who bears our burdens, who bore them on the cross, who showed your great love for us in doing that, but you also invite us to come and gather in a family and bear them up together. We're instructed, bear one another's burdens. So Jesus, I pray that that would more and more become just very much the fabric of our church family. Thank you, Jesus, that you ultimately can bear up under all of it because you bore the cross for us. We pray it and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to ask you to stand. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And uh, every Sunday during Lent, uh, we're, we're, we're going to do the practice of corporate lament. We're going to recite corporate lament together. It's one of the tools we will use to learn the language of lament. And it's re a really good season, actually, for this practice because the road to the cross had some dark days. It's okay for us to look in at the darkness that oftentimes feels like it even prevails in our world but also recognize that that's just the road to the cross. That's the, the, the road to Calvary, but that Jesus rose, that ultimately there is hope. There is resurrection. And so I'm going to read out the, the bulk of the paragraphs and just give you the opportunity to hear it. And then as your heart, your soul resonates with it, I just invite you to respond with the refrain labeled all. This is a difficult one for us to read this morning, we are going to corporately lament dehumanization in the world, where we have not looked at others as equals, as human beings worthy of love and also made in the image of God. We want to lament for the mistreatment of those made in the image of God. We lament how we sin against our fellow man and woman. So often we use them for our own salacious desires or selfish purposes. We forget or directly disobey your commands to love and care for those created in your image. How long, O oh Lord, will you stay patient with us? O oh Lord, we lament our sin. We lament our favoritism towards those with power, prestige, or popularity. How often we neglect to serve the poor homeless and unimpressive as you have called us to do? How long will we overlook the addicted, imprisoned, and orphaned who are needy for Christ? O oh Lord, we lament our sin.
We lament the abusive lust that so often guides our hearts in the things we watch, places we venture, or people we use and discard. How we kill the little ones inside our bellies and snuff out the elderly or unproductive in our society, all for our own freedom. Will you watch these atrocities forever and do nothing? Oh Lord, we lament our sin. We lament our insensitivity to image bearers who don't resemble us. Our hearts are given to racism and discrimination as we prefer our tribe above others and start wars of hate. When, O oh Lord, will you return and make right all the wrong we have caused in this world? O oh Lord, we lament our sins. 